All right, um, let's look at Luke. We're going to start in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this Christmas season when we can celebrate the miraculous of you sending your Son for us. And we thank you, God, that you are gracious to us. We thank you for the blessings that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you would use this Christmas season to further your gospel, to further your kingdom. I pray you'd give us generous hearts towards our friends, our family, our neighbors, Lord, that you would use us in their lives to be ministers of truth and compassion. We pray, Lord, this Christmas season, that the true message of Christmas would go out from the pulpits in America and that truth would be spoken. And that people who maybe only visit church a handful of times a year would hear the truth of the gospel, they would hear the good news and respond in faith to you. Lord, bless uh, the preaching of your word now. Give us ears to hear uh, what you have to speak to us today, give us hearts to receive it and to act upon it for your glory. Amen. All right, well, we've looked for a few weeks at John being the forerunner for Jesus, and now we're going to turn and look at Jesus for uh, a couple sermons. We're going to look specifically at what this passage speaks here regarding his birth, and I want to speak today on his entrance into the world, then later... We'll look at his equality and his effect. But first, his entrance. And there's three things. Did it just get bright? Okay. It got bright for me. Uh, that That was the entrance, right? That was good on cue back there. Nice job. His entrance into this world. There's three things for us to note about his entrance into this world. One, it was unique. Two, it was unblemished. And three, it was upsetting. All right? So first, we're going to talk about it being unique. Um, his entrance. Think about for a moment here all the prophecies. All the prophecies surrounding Jesus. There was the when, the where, the how, the who. All these things were prophesied ahead of time. And God wanted his people to know he was sending someone to rescue them. And, and think about this. The Jews literally had been waiting for, for hundreds, really thousands of years 
for the Messiah. It's not just something that uh, Christianity kind of just like, oh, uh, Jesus is here. Oh, yeah, he's the Messiah. I mean, no. You look through the Old Testament, there are literally hundreds of verses. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, he's a well-known scholar. He searched through all the rabbinic writings at the time of Jesus. So kind of like what all the rabbis, the well-known rabbis, were saying back then. It'd be like looking at all the writings of the theologians today to see what they're saying. He looked at all their writings and noted that in 558 of their passages, they noted that there was about 456 verses regarding the Messiah. That's just in the Old Testament. Another theologian uh, counted it up and came up with about 574 verses in the Old Testament. That's like sometimes when you're reading through the Old Testament, you're like, oh, that's talking about Jesus. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's all, there's, you know, 39 books. You do the math, 574 verses. I mean, you're getting at least a couple verses each book. And all throughout, all throughout, you're seeing. Sometimes it's crystal clear. Sometimes it's just hinted at. But you're seeing it there. And many of the Jews were well-versed in these passages. I want you to look at just one. Thanks. Deuteronomy 18. We're going to start in verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who's the like me? Moses, right? Like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired to the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay? So, I, if you, you guys read Deuteronomy before? Okay? I remember the first time reading this, I was like, wow, I wonder if that's talking about Jesus. Well, guess what? I mean, even the Jews this time and forward, thought this was talking about the Messiah. I mean, he gets, ends up with different titles, right? Prince of Peace, Prophet, Messiah. I mean, on and on, right? But the, but the Jews believed this was talking about the Messiah to come. We see this, I want you to see it, it's pretty cool, in John chapter 7. Because the Jews throughout their history would re- reference the prophet. You read some of their, their, their writings, they talk about the prophet. Who are they talking about? Well, the Messiah to come. That's who they're talking about. We can see this in John chapter 7. Let's pick it up in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now every single version that I looked at says almost that exact thing. This really is the prophet. Not a prophet or one of the prophets. Does your, does your verse say the prophet? Okay, the prophet. Guess what it's referencing back to? That Deuteronomy passage. So the Jews, this entire time, reading the Old Testament, all the way from when Deuteronomy was written, 
had this expectation of this prophet who was the Messiah to come. There was an expectation, and here they are saying, man, is Jesus, is this the prophet? Earlier, we see the same thing, just a couple verses earlier. Look at Luke um, 14, 7, 14, verse 14 of Luke 7. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus is teaching the people here. They're wondering, like, wow, how does he have this great learning? Where, Where is this coming from? I mean, he hasn't even studied. How is that even possible to have this great learning? Well, I want you to see something. Turn over to Luke now. Luke 7, it says this. This is when Jesus raises a widow's son. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Again, they're seeing this is the prophet, not just a prophet, but a great prophet. So the appointed time had come. Galatians 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, right, to redeem us. So these prophecies fill in various details about the Messiah. One of these prophecies we get is from Isaiah. Now, do you guys know when Isaiah's ministry was? About 700 B.C. Okay, so about 700 years Before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah is prophesying about it and giving us some details. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. In verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Both Luke and Matthew show us that the fulfillment here is in Jesus. The virgin has a baby. This has come to be known as one of the fundamentals of the faith when we talk about the virgin birth. Now, when I first was a young Christian, it was very confusing to me when I talked to people. I got saved. I thought people would be, uh, other Christians would be excited that I had gotten saved when I was gone to college. And I came back and I would tell them about my salvation. And sometimes I just get like blank looks. There's blank looks from people. And I would talk about different things in the Bible. I was excited about what God was doing in my life. And I, it, it was puzzling to me because as I talked to these people, it, it turned out that some of the things I was talking about, they didn't even believe in, including the virgin birth. <clears throat> it's considered one of the fundamentals of the faith. 
uh, there's basically, you know, maybe you could boil it down to like five key things if you talk about doctrine. Now, in the past, we've talked about the Reformation and they had the solas, right? You guys remember the solas? But when you talk about the fundamentals of the faith, you can kind of boil it down to about five things. You got the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the blood atonement or substitutionary atonement of Christ, and the bodily resurrection. And as I talked to people, I was surprised that some people didn't even believe in half that, if not all of that stuff. Christianity um, stakes its claim on the deity of Christ, on the substitutionary atonement, on the inerrancy of Scripture, all of these things. And I was shocked... I just, I just kind of even grew up, even though I probably wouldn't have considered myself saved. I was, I was blessed to grow up in a church and at least get some foundation in biblical stories. I was shocked to find out that people tried to jump through some hoops with the resurrection of Jesus and try to do like some spiritual thing. I was like, that's weird. Like he didn't really raise; it was like his spirit raised. No, I mean it's like his bodily resurrection. Early on, uh, the Christians wanted to make sure. Uh, the early Christians wanted to make sure that it was really clear what they believed. So they codified these things in creeds. Like you have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the Creed of Chalcedon. Some churches, if you go to them today, uh, you'll say those creeds at some point in the service. The church I went to growing up, every single week, it was either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I think once a year is like we throw in the, the creed of Chalcedon. But we'd say that. I still got them memorized to this day. Um, creeds uh, can be very helpful. They can codify what people believe. They give uh, show specifically where people are at in just a short little paragraph, right? If you think about the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's the first line. But the very second line, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, right there in those first two lines, I mean, there is a ton of theology. I mean, you could spend a whole lot of time teaching just on those first two lines. It's not meant to teach. It's meant to just clearly state what the beliefs are. And the Apostles' Creed... Um, definitely goes back to the 5th century A.D., if not even maybe the 3rd century. It's possible that it was written within just a few generations of the apostles. So it's a very early document that states out key beliefs of Christianity. If you think of it today, a lot of churches have like a membership handbook, right? And if, sometimes if you join a church, if you join our church, you know, there's usually a little little thing you sign, and I mean, one of the things that kind of makes sense is you agree with, with the handbook. The handbook usually lays out what a church believes. That kind of makes sense. Well, that's kind of what the creed is for Christianity. It kind of lays out what Christianity is about. Why is there always this focus when it comes to Christianity on the person and work of Christ? I mean, because if you look... And think about the history of Christianity. That's really where the attack has always focused from the outside. And here's why. Because if you can take down Christ, you can take down Christianity. That's not really true about other religions. 
But you take down Christ, you can take down Christianity. Christ is central. You can remove some other religious figures uh, from their religion, and you can still have the essence of that religion. But you take Christ out, and, and, and it just all falls apart. Christ is crucial. Why does this particular thing matter, the virgin birth? Why does it matter if he had a supernatural birth or not? I mean, what's the big deal? Because it really gets down to, do I believe he's the eternal son of God who has existed for all time, or do I believe he was merely a man who was conceived through natural relations? Now, depending on what you believe on that, that's going to take you in two different paths. It really is. And so let me say this about miracles. There's kind of a, a big hubbub this past week about miracles on the Internet and stuff. Why does God do miracles? I mean, there's many, many, many reasons God does miracles. I believe he still does them today. But miracles are a foretaste of the kingdom of God to come. All right, they're a foretaste. And miracles show us what our future life with God is going to be like. I mean, think about that for a second. Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in our hearts. And I think all of us, definitely believers, but I actually think most people, if not all people, long for something better. Most people, if they're honest, will realize something's not quite right with this world. I think people will admit there's problems, there's challenges, there's sufferings, and they don't like it and want something to be done about it. God says he puts eternity on our hearts. Part of that, I believe, is we're longing for something better. He's put in our hearts to long for what he has for us. And we try to get there in all sorts of different ways. And here's the thing. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. Because we don't just long for that for ourselves. We actually long for that for other people, too. I mean, like our loved ones and our friends, right? We don't just want something better for us. We want something better for our loved ones our friends. We want them to have something better. And I think that longing for a miracle when we're in different situations and we're praying, that desire for a miracle, it's a desire that God planted in us to long for something better. We are longing for something better. And miracles show us what our future reality looks like. It gives us a little glimpse into the kingdom of God. No pain, no suffering, no hurt, no death. Like, you know, it's all made right in this particular instance or this particular instance. It reminds us that there's a life to come, a much better life, one with the king of the universe, one where we get to be in the very presence of Yahweh himself. So God uses all these things in our lives. So when we're experiencing trials, sufferings, affliction, tribulation, I mean, they should be an encouragement to us to lean on the Lord, to go to him, to run to the shelter of his wings, because... God has something better in store for us. He's got something better. So you get back to this, this debate regarding the virgin birth. Um, why is there such kickback? Because if you agree to this miraculous birth, I mean, we're going to look at it in a second, but the scripture is pretty straightforward. Um, a few things follow. Well, you acknowledge miracles can and do happen. Some people don't like that. You acknowledge that Jesus is in some way very unique. And you acknowledge that this sets him apart from others. No other person has been born this way. Now, 
Matthew and Luke, they're very straightforward. And you think about that, like with Luke, he's like, I've done this, that's how he starts out his gospel. I've done a careful investigation. I've looked into these things. I mean, he's basically like, you know, he is, he's the doctor, right? So he's educated. And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to come up with this excellent, well-researched account, right? God inspires him, speaks through him, but God uses his intellect and his abilities as he's researching this to come up with an accurate account. Luke isn't going to cut any corners. He's not going to put anything in there to, to pad his story. He's going to put the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Matthew is the same way, written to a different audience. But Matthew is straightforward too. And he gives them the truth. Now, if you look at the original Greek, it says, guess what? Exactly what your English says. It's very straightforward. A lot of versions uh, use the word virgin when it talks about... Um, what Mary says that she is. Look back at the Luke text because I want us to see this. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You could literally translate it since I am not knowing a man or I have not known a man. So most versions will just put in the word virgin. That's what it's saying. Here's the thing that's interesting. If If you get into the Greek, you know, we have like, Roughly 5,500 different Greek manuscripts, and, and they continued to find more, right? Now, some of those manuscripts just have different variants. Usually, it's people's spelling of their name, or they you know, mess up the future tense with the, the present tense, or something like that. Um, in this particular passage, this particular verse, there's no variance whatsoever. So no, no scribe came along and was like, oh, that doesn't really make sense. I better change the word or something. You know, It happens sometimes. There's no variance in this particular verse. All the manuscripts that they've had, it says exactly what we have here, no questions about it. So all 5,500, when it was copied, written, passed around, is what we got. It hasn't been changed. There's no question about that text. So no one argues that the text uh, has been corrupted, that there could be a different word, a better word. No, no one argues about that. And no one even argues about how to actually translate it and say, well, no, there's, there's five different ways to translate this particular word, and, and just one of them is... Ver- no, no one even argues that. Everyone actually says this is the verse. It's translated right. Then comes the part of, okay, so what do we do with it? That's really where it's at. What do we do with it? Well, we need to believe it. That's what we do with it. We realize that God... Here, here, here's, how, here's how I, I kind of think about it, because some people have problems with this or even uh, you know, the Red Sea parting. I, to me, it's kind of like if, if God created the universe, I, I mean, what else? How, is anything else too big of a challenge for him? So if he created it, he can kind of do whatever he wants with it. So he's created the entire... If you can get to that point, everything else, to me, kind of easy to believe, Right? It's his universe. He gets to call the shots. If he wants to do some crazy, amazing stuff in the Old Testament, some crazy, amazing stuff in the New Testament, I'm like, dude, that's, that's the God I know. He's just acting like I know he should act. So I don't think it's, it's much of a stretch for any of us to see these verses and be like, Lord, I believe that. I trust that. That's how you work. That makes sense. Now, we can get into all the, the theology of why it's important and why God needed to intervene the way he did, that's probably a different sermon, maybe next year. 
Um, but my point is, is it did happen, and we believe it. So that's my first point. My second point is his entrance was unblemished. He came into the world spotless. All of us, we come into the world born into sin. He comes into the world spotless. From the beginning, the pronouncement was made over him that he would be holy. Look at the very next verse. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now, some of your versions might word it a little bit different. They might say, The holy child will be called the Son of God. The point is, the word holy is there, and it's being used to talk about Jesus. He is holy. The only reason, listen to me, the only reason, the only reason, the only reason we can be called holy is because Jesus was first holy. Okay, So his holiness, he can give to us, but he had to be holy in order to give us holiness. We're born into sin. We're not holy. Not from birth. We're not holy. Christ comes right there. He's born holy, spotless, without blemish. And what does he do? He maintains that. He lives it out. He follows every letter of the law to a T. He was holy and righteous. And then, praise the Lord, when he is crucified on that cross, right, he takes his sins, sorry, our sins upon him, right? And we can have life in him. But it's not just, you know, a lot of times we we emphasize this, we're just erasing our sins, which is true, praise the Lord. Our sins are erased, but we get his holiness. There's like a double exchange going on, okay? We take our sin. Here, here, Jesus, take my sins. And then he's like, here, Michael, take my righteousness. That's pretty amazing. That's what he's doing. But that's the only reason we can be called holy. And, I mean, that's how Paul talks uh, in a lot of his epistles when he opens up his letters to them. He's calling them holy. You know, saints, it's really the the same root word in the Greek. You could translate it really either way. Some versions do. So you see saints, say holy ones. Look at 1 Peter 1. Let's start in verse 17, 1 Peter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You guys realize when he makes the reference there to the lamb, what he's talking about, because the Passover lamb, I mean, it, had to be, it couldn't have any spot or blemish. It had to be perfect. God required the perfect sacrifice with the Passover. Guess what? For us, he required the perfect sacrifice as well. That's what Peter is drawing upon. And look a couple verses later, because, friends, this is amazing. These are things, I mean, the whole gospel, everything we're talking about, these are things that angels have longed to understand. And that's what it says. Verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
things into which angels long to look. And here we have it revealed to us. The very truth and word of God. So his entrance was unique, his entrance was unblemished, and third, his entrance was upsetting. One, the kingdom of man was threatened. You see this with Herod. What does Herod end up doing after he finds out the wise men kind of duped him? He wipes out an entire village of the boy children. Boom. Just like that. Goes in. Two years and younger, wipe them out. Why? Because he's threatened. His power is threatened. And rulers like to hold on to their power. They'll go to extremes to keep their power. You see this with the Pharisees too. What happens? Their established power. When I'm saying power, what am I talking about? Their authority, their influence. It's threatened. What do they do? Well, you get rid of the threat to your power. You take them out. Here's the thing. If we're honest, we like to hold on to our power too. That's not of God. We We don't want to let things go and release things. And people lean one of two ways when it comes to power and authority. They want a lot or they don't want any. So they either grab more than they should or they abdicate what they shouldn't. That's not how it works. God gives limited authority to various positions. Why? Ultimately to further his kingdom. Not to pad your bank account or to make yourself feel great. No, to be a servant. To be a servant of the Lord. So the kingdom of man was threatened, but also the kingdom of darkness was threatened. There's this passage in Revelation, in verse 4 of 12, it says this, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, if you look at that whole passage, I mean, it's, it's talking about the birth of Jesus. And we find out, even from the very beginning, Satan was trying to disrupt things. From the very beginning. Now, we see him come into the picture much later in the Gospels. But here we understand that even from his birth, Satan was trying to mess things up. Listen, Satan knew something was going down. He knew the prophecies. He knew the child was God in the flesh. He knew this was his last shot. And what do we see through Jesus' public ministry time and time again? I mean, we see Satan throwing everything he can at Jesus. All sorts of demons, all sorts of demon-possessed people, and they're all like interacting with Jesus. You get the idea reading the Gospels? Like, this is like a regular occurrence for Jesus. Like, you know, he wakes up and, up oh, time for another encounter with a demon. Why? Because Satan was doing anything and everything to take Jesus down. Okay, okay, this didn't work. Okay, I'm going to try this. Okay, this didn't work. Okay, let's try this. Uh, this didn't, I mean, he's just trying everything. He gets so desperate, he, like, offers Jesus, like, everything. Not that it was his to offer. So what's going on? Satan knew what was in the balance. His entrance was upsetting. Jesus' entrance was upsetting to the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Listen, God, in order to save man, became a man. God incarnate. Literally God in the flesh. God humbled himself to reach us, to save us, to rescue us. 
This is the God-man, Jesus. Emmanuel, literally, prophesied 700 years before, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So yes, his entrance is unique. It's unblemished. It's upsetting. And here's the thing, friends. His entrance was for each one of us. He came for each one of us. He wanted to redeem a people for his own. He wanted each person to have the gift offered to them to have their sins forgiven. To have that slate wiped clean. No other person can offer that to you. Well, they can offer it. They can try. But no other person can can do that. All the other religions, really not about religion, friends. It's about what Jesus did for you. And he's very straightforward in what he shares. Sometimes it's just best to let Jesus speak for himself. John 14, 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on. If that wasn't clear enough, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty clear. Jesus is the one. He is the mediator between God and man. And God sent his son to mediate, to intercede, and to redeem us. How do we get that? I want to be, have my sins wiped clean. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to have peace with God. I don't want his anger poured out on me for the sins I've committed. How do, what, what do we do? It's gonna, it's, it, you know what? It's one of the hardest things to do, I believe, in many ways. Because it takes a humble position. It takes humility. Every single person wants to be able to do things on their own. It takes a very humble person to admit they can't do it. And when we're talking about the most key thing, our very soul, and what's at stake with it, we want to hope and believe that we can take care of it on our own. That's why a lot of religions will lean towards the works. Why? If it's about the works, then we're putting the ball in our court. The ball's in our court. We can do something about it. But the truth is, there ain't no ball in our court. It's about what Jesus already did. And how are we going to respond? Here's the thing, friends. Just understand this. God acts, and then we react. God acts first. Always has. Always will. He acted first. Acted first at the beginning of creation. Acted first sending his son into the world. He always acts. And then, and then we have to do something. There's a reaction. And we're either going to react and, and see that and rejoice at it and believe it, or we're going to see it and react and reject it. One of two things. And my encouragement is to react and rejoice at what God has done for you and, and grab hold of that. Trust in this Lord. Trust in Yahweh. Trust in this God who loved you so much to send his very son to redeem you. Who loved you so much, he provided a way to wipe away your sins. Who loved you so much, he provided a way to give you the righteousness of God himself. That's pretty amazing. What a great gift. All right? Forget all the Christmas presents you're going to get this year. 
The greatest gift is what God has already given to us. Do you want that gift? I want that gift. Well, God gives it to us through faith. We trust the Lord and what he's done. Do you trust that Jesus' payment was enough? Do you believe that it was for you? That's really what it gets down to. That's really what salvation is. God's grace poured out on you through faith. You believe you're reacting to what God has already acted on in your life. So if you trust and believe, the word is very clear, you'll be saved. Trust. Put your faith in the work that Christ did for you already. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each person here. You know their hearts. I ask, Lord, that you'd be working in their hearts right now. Speak to each person here. We thank you, Father, that we have new life in your Son and only through him. We thank you, Lord, that your word says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you'd give that gift to people today that don't have it. Give them the gift of faith. Show them yourself, Lord. Open their hearts to the great things you've already done for them through your Son. Lord, we thank you that you are so good. I pray for everyone here. I pray for the families represented. I pray for the children. That you'd be gracious to save each person. That you would pour out your grace on each person and give them faith. Continue your ways with us, Lord. Help us to stay seeking after you. We thank you for the gift of your son, for his entrance into this world, Lord. May you continue to do your work in us and through us. Amen.